Hey everybody, very important announcement related to today's episode before we get started. If you're in crisis or you need someone to talk to, send a text message to 741-741 to be connected with a counselor in crisis text line right now. This episode will still be here when you get back. It's very important if you need that to do that right now. The number is 741-741. Now on with today's episode. Welcome to episode 20 of the For the Love of Data podcast. I'm your host, Robert Furr, a consultant with Capco out of Dallas, Texas. And today I have one of, if not the most important topics that we've discussed on the podcast today. We're going to be talking about Crisis Text Line, which is a service that you can send a text message to anywhere uh, where you have a mobile phone and you'll be paired up with a crisis counselor uh, who can help you work through the issue that you're having and hopefully get you to a, uh, a better place than when you start the call. And today we're going to be talking to two people about Crisis Text Line, how it began, and how they use data to truly make a difference in the lives of those that text them and for other people that are going through crisis and other organizations helping those in need. A little background about Crisis Text Line. It's a service that receives over a million messages that are transmitted to it each month. 75% of the texters are under 25 and 10% of the texters are under the age of 13. 65% of the people that text Crisis Text Line say they've shared something with their counselor that they haven't shared with anyone else. Usually the service has at least one active rescue per day, which is where they actually request help to intervene with a texter that they're communicating with to prevent uh, any more serious consequences from happening. Um, The roots of Crisis Text Line actually goes back to 1906 when Save a Life League started via newspaper ads. The Samaritans was the first phone suicide hotline and it started in November of 1953. So all the way from newspaper ads and then to phone hotlines And now Crisis Text Line is working in a new, more responsive way uh, using text messaging to reach those in need. The organization was founded by Nancy Lublin, who is also the CEO of DoSomething.org. It was began in 2011. And today we're going to be talking with two very special guests. Uh, The first is Scotty Hun, who is a data scientist at Crisis Text Line. He is a graduate of the University of Southern California. He's got a bachelor's degree in international relations and affairs, and he began working with Crisis Text Line as a counselor, and he served in that capacity for about a year and 10 months, and he still uh, takes crisis um, shifts today. But for the past nine months, since about January, he has also been a data scientist with the organization. And so we're going to learn about how he works with data, the tools that he uses to do his jobs, and some surprising insights that he's found. And the way that I actually came across the organization is through another person that we're going to talk to. Her name is Stacy Butler. She's a former colleague of mine at Capco, and she started working with Crisis Text Line in March of this year. And I could just truly hear the passion in her her voice when she talked 
uh, about the organization. She is a, a Texas A&M graduate, whoop, just like me, and she worked with us for several years. And then she actually made the decision to uh, move back into uh, education and go back to school for a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling. So without any further ado, I give you Crisis Text Line in episode 20 of For the Love of Data. Hey everybody, I'm here with Scotty and Stacy from Crisis Text Line and I'm really excited about this topic. Uh, it's Crisis Text Line is a organization that the moment I heard about it from Stacy who used to work with me, I've been uh, doing some research on it and, and been bugging her to, to come on and talk about it. So let me let you guys take uh, take a turn and introduce yourselves. Stacy, you want to go first? Sure. Um, so Rob and I worked together for some time and I became a Crisis Text Line volunteer counselor back in March of this year. Uh, I found out about the organization actually from a TED Talk that our CEO and founder did um, and it inspired me so much I just I applied that night uh, I was really intrigued by how this organization helps people but it also has a data and tech aspect and that really appealed to me um, so now I've been doing it about six months and it's just been a great experience great Scotty how about you yeah, hey everyone. Uh, I uh, first found about found out about Crisis Text Line in the middle of my senior year at college down at, at USC. Uh, I was studying economics and international relations, and I came across an article in the New Yorker called "Are You There?" Uh, it's sort of a, a long form piece that talks about uh, the founding of Crisis Text Line and sort of what went into that thinking. And I think the the pitch, similar to how Stacy just described it really resonated with my life story and felt like something that I could really be a part of and would find a lot of value in and also felt like I could impact a lot too. Uh, so I started training uh, December of 2015, joined uh, one of our first cohorts of volunteers in January of last year. Uh, I've been counseling ever since, so about, about 18 months now. Uh, and about halfway through my time, halfway through my first year counseling, I uh, started to get some real excitement around the data, uh, particularly some of the work our chief data scientist, Bob Philbin, does on a weekly basis, where he sends out emails to all of our counselors talking about some data trends on the platform. Uh, got me excited about data science and more specifically trying to actually join the data team at Crisis Text Line. Fast forward six months, uh, I joined the data team uh, in January of this year. So I'm now a, a data scientist at Crisis Text Line in addition to a volunteer. And I couldn't be happier to still be having the volunteer experience, uh, sort of when I take my weekly shifts. Uh, and then also the, uh, the experience as a data scientist, really working on the inside and trying to advocate for our mission. Very cool. Well, I want to get into a little bit of the history of the organization and then a little bit about the data science aspect specifically. And also, Stacey, your experience as a counselor and, and yours as well, Scotty, since you were one too. Um, so in reading a little bit about Crisis Text Line, I know that uh, the, the CEO uh, 
was working with an organization called Do Something, and it sort of spun off from that. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of it from there? Yeah, yes. I can jump into that. Sure, Stacey, do you want to? I think yeah. you probably know more since you started <laughs> earlier, so I'd like to hear your perspective. Yeah, sure. Uh, it really is an, an incredible story, uh, one that I think every time you hear it, your sort of heart stops for a moment, uh, just realizing how one sort of one spark can lead to uh, what we now know as Crisis Text Line. And that started while our CEO, Nancy Loveland, was at uh, her, the organization she was running before Crisis Text Line, DoSupling.org. Uh, what DoSupling figured out was that they could text message uh, large groups of youth uh, around the country about volunteering opportunities to get them involved in their communities. But what ended up, ha uh, what, ha what started happening on sort of a rare case, but people would actually respond to those text messages. And sometimes those would be sort of, you know, excited about the volunteering opportunities, et cetera. But some of those responses were sort of not what, not what you'd expect. They were uh, teens and young people reaching out for help. And in specific, uh, one of those messages, one of those messages uh, was sent, uh, I think maybe in 2012 or so, and it's the frame of the New Yorker article, Are You There? Uh, and that message was from a woman who said that she was currently being uh, raped by her father and she had nobody to talk to. She didn't know what to do. And she ended her conversation by saying, are you there? And the, the team at Do Suppling uh, were sort of shocked. They didn't know how to respond, what they should do. And they had a they they reached out to the woman through text and tried to continue the conversation. Offered some resources uh, that they they didn't end up hearing back from the woman, but it sparked this idea in our CEO's mind that there should be a resource out there for people to reach out to in crisis and to be able to communicate through this new medium of text messaging. Uh, it's where the idea started, and they sort of uh, spent two years or so researching the idea, thinking about thinking through how what the implementation would actually look like. Uh, launched in 2013 in one zip code, uh, sort of very isolated sort of trial, uh, and within one month we were in every zip code in the country, and sort of use is just. Uh, continue to explode from there. Wow, what an interesting story. And I mean, to hear it come from just one text message, it's really amazing to see how big of a movement has come from that. Stacy, can you tell me a little bit about what it takes to become a crisis counselor? Sure, so um, I applied in late January. Um, the application kind of goes over any experience you've had with helping people, um, 
whether you feel like you're an empathetic person, challenging experiences that you've been through. Um, I feel like it asks a lot of the right questions to determine if someone has the disposition to become a counselor. But uh, I want to I also want to say you don't necessarily have to have a lot of experience. Um, having the interest and wanting to learn is is really important. Um, so after after you're accepted, you go through training and um, I went through training. It was five weeks. Um, and as of now, they've updated the training and made it even better. So I'm really looking forward to seeing seeing the new training material here in, in a few weeks. Um, but when I went through it, it covered, um, it put a huge emphasis on communication skills, how to talk to texters, um, you know, five parts of a conversation, how to assess someone's level of risk, um, how to use, we call them strength IDs. They're, they're really empowering statements, like you're being really brave right now, or you're doing the best you can in this situation. Um, and then we also focused on common topics that we see, such as depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, self-harm, grief, uh, eating disorders, addictions, abuse and the LGBTQ community. So I felt like the training was really comprehensive and did an amazing job preparing me for, for the conversations I had with texters on the platform. And I think so, the, no, the, the interesting thing about training is we could give counselors a hundred hours of training and we still wouldn't teach them everything that they're gonna see on the platform in these real world conversations, uh, which is I think what makes what Stacy just said there so important that uh, what we're really trying to do is to teach empathy, to, to try to take this very uh, sort of hard to define term and, and give our counselors the techniques that they can use to, to communicate in an empathetic way, to understand what it means to be actively listening uh, with the hopes that when they run into a conversation that they know nothing about on a topic that maybe we weren't able to train them on, they'll still be able to use those contact techniques and those uh, more philosophical points to um, to do their, their counseling job well and to, to help their texture from that, that hot moment to more of a cooler calm. But it's sort of that, I think, I think that's what can be quite intimidating about the space is thinking that you need to know everything about every issue to be a good counselor. Um, I mean, I definitely had that fear uh, when I was going through training and sort of the anxiety about taking your first shift and your first conversation. But I think that's what also is so reassuring when you actually start is that you don't need to know everything. You just need to have this approach, this mode of thinking uh, that really can pull you the way. So one of the things that you guys said that was kind of interesting to me is uh, you, you talked about like strength IDs, I think it was, like strong statements that you can make telling someone how brave they are. And what's interesting to me is when I've, the, the things I've read about what you guys do with data, it seems like you let data drive a, a ton of your decision making. And so it seems like at some point you've got to take insights from data and translate it into you know, empathetic statements or empathetic actions and more of a, you know, a psychological type of construct. 
And so can you tell me a little bit about how you how you use that data and how you make that transition? Because, you know, it's different from taking a bunch of data, reading a report and deciding because the data says I need to, you know, buy this stock at this price, I'm going to do it. You have to give it a more human and emotional feel. So talk about that a little bit. Definitely. I think so. One of the one of the sort of guideposts we use here is on every conversation uh, at the end of the conversation, we ask our texters, did you find this conversation helpful? They can respond yes or no to that. Uh, in addition, we also send them a more extended post conversation survey where uh, we ask them some other more detailed questions. Uh, but just going off of that single question, we have this now labeled corpus of 1.3 million conversations uh, right now. And granted, we don't have responses on every one of those. Uh, not every single person is going to respond to that question. Uh, but a large majority of them, d we do. So what we can take from that is you can start backtracking and looking at, okay, well, what did a counselor do in a given conversation that might have impacted that rating uh, from a texter? And sort of using those using those investigative questions, we're able to extract a lot of insights relative to, to counselor behaviors and, and how we can try to inform counselors uh, to sort of meet their texture where they're at and hopefully uh, do, you know, do as well as they can. Uh, an example of that is we actually looked into strength IDs uh, in one of our recent sort of data insights. And we were trying to answer the question, what's the right amount of strength IDs? Uh, as Stacy just mentioned there, uh, strength IDs are this sort of umbrella of validating terms where you reflect on what a texture has shared with you, uh, you know, phrases along the lines of, it's brave that you, uh, it's strong that you, you deserve X, Y, Z. Uh, and we actually, so we track the number of strength IDs that a counselor offers to a texter and match that with the quality ratings that a texter gives on a conversation. And we found the optimum number is around seven or eight in a conversation, which is much higher than maybe you would expect to find. Um, but passing that insight along to our counselors, we're able to sort of educate them on what they might incorporate into their own counseling practice. These are not hard and fast rules. They're just sort of uh, suggestions of, of things counselors might incorporate into how they're, how they're talking with exers. Interesting. And so are those insights presented to the counselors as like additional training or offline, or is that something that's coming up as they're in a yeah. conversation with someone? Yeah, it's funny. Stacy and I were, were were talking about this before, and I think there's really these there's just these two sides to it. The first side is you want to make sure that your training for all of your new counselors is as up to date as possible, so that your counselors, your new counselors, or your, sorry, your trainees coming through uh, the program are seeing content that reflects the most up to date data and insights and understanding of counseling. So on the one hand, we 
you know, when we find insights like that, when we, um, when we look into new sort of ways of counseling, we immediately incorporate that into, into our training for our new counselors. That's sort of where we're at now. <laughs> Not wasn't always like that. Uh, on the flip side, for counselors who are already on the platform, we have a few different touch points to try to get that information to them so that they can see it, digest it, and think about how it will incorporate into their own counseling voice. Um, one of those is our weekly newsletter. So we send that out to all of our counselors each week. And the first portion of that newsletter is devoted to data and the data insight or something that we've been looking into. Um, the second is we have, uh, we have our own social network now. Uh, we have a, um, a mobile app as well as a web platform that is a network of all our counselors. We have a lot of discussion forums there, other topics of conversation, and we will post those data insights there and try to get counselors talking about them and, and hear what they think and hear how it sounds. Uh, we also have a Facebook page that we'll use to disseminate that information. Um, but I think looking at those two sides, the counselors you already have active, as well as the ones coming from the system, we're trying our best to, to communicate to both of them you know, everything we know, as soon as we know it, so that it's a very nimble system. Very cool. Now, you're also doing some analytics on uh, the the texts that the uh, that the counselees are sending as well, right, to identify, uh, you know, things they may be at risk of. I, I, I read somewhere that you guys started out thinking that certain words would be triggers, and over time you realized the data revealed some surprises that uh, and made you ch kind of change that thinking on specific keywords. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I think what you're referring to there is uh, our work with triaging our texters. So one thing we think a lot about, as opposed to a, a traditional crisis hotline, uh, for example, a call center, they'll have to service each caller as they come into the system. So if somebody calls, they're either connected to a counselor or they're put in a queue and they have to wait for everyone else to be serviced before they go. Uh, for our service though, we in real time are able to view the text messages that a texter sends to our system before we're able to connect them to a counselor. So a really early insight, version one, was to say, okay, let's look at all those messages and let's pick out all the words we think would be associated with the most high-risk conversations. If a texture says any of those words, let's pop them to the front of the queue and make sure that they're connected with a counselor as quickly as possible. So at first, those words were intuitive. They're ones we would all be able to brainstorm right now. Suicide, pills, uh, cutting, harm, um, any word you would associate with those very high-risk behaviors and a high risk of suicidal intent, uh, we flagged, and those conversations would go to the top of the queue. Now, what we found, though, is what if a texter messages in, I'm not feeling suicidal tonight, or I don't want to hurt myself? still those conversations under the first version would be floated to the top. 
So what we've been doing uh, sort of now in the last six months is we created a new version that uses some machine learning models to actually look at what messages sent by texters actually result in a high-risk situation. So that could be an active rescue where our supervisors have to contact local paramedics. Uh, that could be um, sort of other buckets of high-risk conversations. And through that work, we've surfaced the words and phrases that are uh, most have the highest probability of resulting in high-risk conversations. One insight um, off the top is that ibuprofen is actually 16 times more likely to result in a, so a texter messaging in the word ibuprofen in their first messages is 16 times more likely to result in an active rescue than messaging the word suicide. The unhappy face emoji, so colon and a open parenthesis is four times more likely to result in an active rescue than the word suicide. So extracting these dynamic insights and incorporating them into this triage model has allowed us to reach our highest risk texters even quicker and make sure that they are getting the support that they deserve. Wow, that is fascinating. And I can't really imagine someone being able to uncover insights like that on their own for years if you didn't have the ability to put some machine learning algorithms behind that. Yeah, I think what's unique about our data set, uh, um, this space has just not seen before, is having both a textual corpus, which is relatively easy to parse with some of these new machine learning models, as well as having labels on the outcomes of that textual corpus. That combination of both uh, allowing this supervised learning of a inputs of inputs and labels and labels on the on the flip side, uh, yeah, it just allows you to do some really really powerful work that I think can have a huge impact on this space. So tell me a little bit about the type of data that you guys can and can't use. I know you said there's some surveys at the end and, and people can opt in to use your data or to use their data. But if I'm a caller that, that wants to call in, what do I have to give you and what does a counselor see from me? Stacy? maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. So actually, when a texter first texts in, um, if it's their first time texting, we really don't know anything about them other than, you know, the first text they send. Um, everything is anonymous, so really the texter can control what information they want to share. Um, we usually do ask for a name because we like to have that personal connection, but um, obviously they don't have to give their real name. Um, I've had texters ask me, like they'll tell me a color or a letter, like I want to be called X or I want to be called orange. And you know, that's fine. Um, so I do really like that um, the texter can trust that any information they don't want to share, they can keep private. Um, if they have texted before, 
there is a little bit of information that we can see as counselors. Um, we can click on their, they have kind of a texter profile, and we can see how many conversations they've had in, um, like, over, over the whole time from when they first texted to now. Um, and we can see um, the counselor surveys from the last, I think it's five, it's either three or five, and we can't see the conversation itself, but the counselor after the conversation will provide kind of a summary of what the texter was going through, um, whether they were like having suicidal thoughts, um, kind of those level of risk, um, what resources they were given, and what coping skills they they said would help them. And so if you're getting that texter and it's like the third time they've texted, you can see, oh, I see that they said journaling is really calming for them. And we we want every conversation to feel authentic. And so we never say, oh, I see you've texted us before. That's really more of a point of reference for us and okay. kind of some ideas that we could help them with. But really, um, we treat each conversation um, we, we don't go off of the history too much. Each conversation is unique and each conversation is its own. Tell me a little bit about the platform that you're looking at as a counselor. So you, you get some of these insights that you said, like a, a small profile of their previous activity, if they have any. Uh, you get the survey information from previous counselors. You obviously get the incoming messages from them. Uh, but is there anything that, like if they're at risk of a particular problem uh, or, or challenge or in need of a particular service, is there something in the platform that can help connect them to that? We have um, a section on the platform that shows us all of the resources that we have. Um, and those resources are all vetted out by the Crisis Text Line staff. They make sure that it is free and open to everyone. Um, and then we can search those resources by topic. They have keywords like um, anxiety or grief. And you can search those and then see all of the resources there. And some of them are very, very specific. Um, one, some that I was surprised to see, there was one for like an online support group for loss of pets. There was another one that was um, resources for when someone is hearing voices and they don't know why. And, you know, that's so there it can be very specific. It's great for when you have a conversation where you really want to provide them resources. Um, and then another thing in that post counselor survey, um, one thing that probably drives a lot of our data is after the conversation, we have different, we have like lists of, of check boxes where you can say every topic that the conversation covered. Um, and, you know, some of those examples are like uh, anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, self-harm, family issues, friend issues. It's really um, all of the different categories that we have available to view on um, crisistrends.org. Um, and you, you can select everything that was discussed. And then that's also something that you see in the texter's profiles. You can see 
last in the last conversation the texter talked about family issues in school okay so we've talked about the quote unquote the platform a few times so tell me when you're a counselor and and you engage what are you doing exactly where where are you when you uh you know start a session and are you just pulling up something on a web browser is there anything special that somebody would need to get started um, it is in the browser, and um, I know when I started, they were saying it works best with Google Chrome. I, I don't know. They've done a lot of updates, so it might be good on any browser you want to use now. Um, Scott, Scotty could probably, could probably talk to that point. Um, but you log in. It feels kind of, to me, it feels kind of like Facebook or Google Chats where you have the but it's geared towards counselors we have um, on the left sidebar there are chats for the counselors and we have a support chat where you can give advice um, there's a decompression chat where after you have like a rough conversation you can you can talk to other counselors and that is a very uplifting and positive place to be. And then we have a random chat where we can just talk about whatever. And we also always have a supervisor um, anytime we log in. And so if we have questions or we need to start doing an active rescue, we refer to our supervisors. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so Scotty, is this a custom-built application that you guys maintain, and it's and it grows over time? Yeah. yeah so, one of our biggest challenges, um, going a little bit back to the founding of the organizations, I think this will be this will um, provide a bit more context and why we ended up where we are, which is to say, when the when Crisis Text Line was first scoped, we thought our value add as an organization was to be a platform. So we thought we were going to bring this revolutionary platform to connecting texters to people who are going to have conversations with them and try to de-escalate them. And the version 1.0 idea was actually that those people were going to be the existing crisis centers across the U.S. So there's more than there's several hundred crisis centers. These are like sort of the 911 servicing centers across the U.S. And we went to them and brought them onto our platform to service texters, to have conversations with texters. And what we found is that actually every crisis center, almost every crisis center in the country has different policies around crisis intervention, policies around how you communicate with a texter, what questions you need to ask when you are suspicious of uh, suicidal intent. Uh, so we were getting very inconsistent sort of uh, interactions. Some skewed one direction, some skewed another. And so we put out an experiment. We, we thought, what if we trained our own volunteers? and use them as the people servicing these texters. So we trained our first cohort of volunteers and we put them side by side and, and did some quality tests from our uh, trained volunteers to these crisis centers. And it was a resounding conclusion that the volunteers were actually performing better in the outcomes that we were uh, 
measuring them against. So at that point, we actually switched our model from sort of a service provider model to a fully integrated platform where we're both providing the tech stack as well as the people who are interacting on that tech stack. So the platform itself is living and breeding, living, <laughs> living and breathing. It Sorry. really is growing. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's, yes, it's gargantuan. Um, but it, it brings up some really interesting questions too, because the platform, you know, it, we sort of, uh, we refer to it almost romantically as the platform because you end up spending this very emotional and, and a significant part of our time as a counselor is spent on it. So when you say it, it sort of elicits this almost emotional response. And it was built for a time when we were handling maybe a few hundred conversations a month. This month, we are expecting to service 80,000 conversations. Wow. About 3,000 conversations a day. So thinking about scale, I think our platform is a very interesting case of, I mean, can't build something, something that was built for several hundred conversations might operate a bit differently with 80,000 a month. So they're really interesting questions that are coming up right now. And I think that's the initial question was, is the platform living and breathing? Yes, we built it all internally. It's sort of our secret sauce. Like it's very difficult to connect these different endpoints together and create a fluid system uh, that is pleasant, especially on sort of the texter. Since we have three users, we have our texters, our counselors, and our supervisors. Mm -hmm. Like push it, uh, having those three interact together seamlessly is a very difficult technical challenge, one that uh, we've solved in some respects, but of course there's a, a lot of opportunities for growth still. So I wanna, I wanna geek out here for a second and talk about the technology. So tell me a little bit about the technology stack that the platform is built on that, uh, that counselors see and then also tell me about the technologies that you use behind the scenes to do your data analysis and to um, do your machine learning and things like that. Yeah, so I can't speak too much to the foundations of our tech stack. That's not something that I uh, touch too much, but I can speak about the data side. Okay. Uh, on the data side, of course, that's a living and breathing environment too, uh, figuring out what data you want to collect um, and then basically how you collect it and then how you analyze it. Um, so, you know, we have a, a MySQL database on the technical speak. We have a, you know, MySQL database uh, where we store all of our data. Um, our data team is, is querying that database and uh, in terms of tools, you know, we're using SQL, Python, a bit of R, and uh, my particular responsibilities is I take a lot of, spend a lot of my time working on dashboards. Uh, so dashboards are sort of our way of visualizing our data and presenting it to stakeholders so that they can uh, sort of have agency over that data and use it to inform different decisions, uh, different sort of resource allocations, 
And that can be applied both internally to our organization as well as externally. So internally, that means building out a dashboard that visualizes our texture trends and gives it to our communications team so that when media partners come to our organization and ask, you know, what are the trends around texters who are suicidal and under the age of 18, our communications team is actually able to go to that dashboard and extract those insights and uh, push those out to external parties. Uh, so that's some of our internal work and our external work is actually, I'd say the primary shape that takes is through our, our keyword partnerships. Uh, so our keyword partnerships was a really incredible idea that came together about two years ago, whereby we partner with different organizations. So for example, the state of Ohio is one of our partners. And what that means is that the state of Ohio now markets our number. So our number is 741741 alongside their specific keyword. So in Ohio, the keyword is for hope. So they'll have marketing materials that say text for hope. So 741741. And what we'll do is we actually provide aggregated insights on the trends of for hope texters. So we're actually able to give these organizations an understanding of what it means to be in crisis in their given population. So externally, I'm building dashboards for these partners to try to give them better agency over understanding what the trends are, what's happening in their data, and actually being able to take actions on that data too. I think the goal that we have, um, which we're achieving in some regards, but I think we can, you know, we're putting a lot more resources in it into it too, is really putting our data, finding ways to put our data in the right hands so that people can take actions on it and really uh, feel like they can make an impact with the, the data that we're providing. Well, and one of the places that I've noticed that that is, uh, incredibly uh, obvious is crisistrends.org, which, uh, I mean, you tell me if I have this right, but it's basically a sister site to Crisis Text Line where you guys reveal some of your insights. And right now you do it on a state level and uh, you you have all of these really gorgeous looking visualizations there where people can see, you know, what issues are most prevalent in certain places and, and, and at times. And so, it seems like your your keyword partnerships are a, a way to give that flavor to specific uh, places around the country. Is that a good way to summarize that? Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. We're uh, we're working with our, our partners both on sort of a, a generalized case, which is to say, this is what we think is valuable, and and pushing it to them, pushing it to it to them. Um, but we also want to have that relationship of understanding what would be helpful to you and how can we be a partner in that process? Uh, so I think that's when our data and our, our value as an organization is really maximized when we're able to have that relationship with our partners. And I think Crisis Trends is a great example of how we can push that data to the wider, uh, to a wider audience. And I think there, you know, there's always more to be done there too. 
and we're excited about figuring out ways to, to provide more data publicly and, and also how we can do that, keeping in mind that privacy is our number one concern and that you know we always are walking this line of trying to move the space forward and provide this, this granularity and this understanding of crisis that there really has been no data on before, but also knowing that behind every data point is a conversation, is a texter, and is you know an anonymous interaction that we're uh, maintaining the privacy of. Right. So let me talk a little bit more about anonymity. Up to this point, we talked about how if a, if a caller calls in, they don't have to give you their real name. The counselor doesn't see their phone number, right? They just see, you know, if there is a history, they see it, but they don't have access to the, the person's phone number, correct? Right, or their correct. location. And on the flip side, the caller doesn't have any, uh, any idea about the counselor's identity or where they're located or anything like that, right? Correct. That's uh, also right. Now, I think I read something too that some of the like wireless phone companies actually uh, cover the cost of the text messages and make it uh, something that doesn't appeal on, appear on your billing statement. Is that correct? Yeah, so we're actually the, the only uh, crisis line in the country. Um, or honestly, I think the only organization period that has this agreement with uh, the four main wireless carriers, which is that our service is free of charge and also it is sort of automatically it doesn't show up on any cell records so that uh, texters or messaging into our service don't have to worry about uh, their conversations becoming public even to their uh, maybe even to their close family or even to uh, people that would be seeking it so we've tried our best to to ensure that uh, anonymous interaction. And I think that maybe the, the final point I'll add there is when texters first message into our service, they, they receive our terms of service, um, as well as at the end after a conversation has been closed. And in those terms, one of the options texters have is to message back into our service uh, with a keyword called LUFA. Uh, and if they text in with a, a loofah keyword, uh, we will scrub all the data that we have on that texture from our system. So this, you know, so the, the interaction is uh, kept private. And in addition to that, the texture can choose to scrub all of sort of the metadata that might be associated with their conversation. And so if they do that and they text in again later, is it like a brand new person texting in for the first time? Yeah, I'm actually not sure of exactly what the user flow looks like, but all of the um, all of the sort of personally identifiable information of that texter will have been scrubbed. Uh, the fact that they are messaging back in and whether or not they're a returning texter or messaging in or if it appears as if they're messaging in for the first time. Um, I'm not positive of that. I actually haven't uh, encountered that as a counselor, or, and I just don't know the, the technical technical side of that. Okay, and, and then on the on the back end of that, when you do use their, their data for insights, 
like I said, I think uh, crisistrends.org is only at state level right now. And you may be going down to zip code level in the future. Is that on your radar? Yeah. So so the way we extract that uh, location data is, is based on a, a texter's phone number. Um, so one option that we do have that we're looking to, um, you know, that we do have at our disposal is to, right now all that mapping is done on the first three digits of a texter's phone number. So zip code match, or sorry, area code mapping is not a one-to-one -one relationship. So some area codes are not fully contained within states since they are actually a telephone mapping system, not really a, uh, they weren't bounded by state boundaries. Right. Um, on the other hand, if you go to the first six digits of a texter's phone number, that's uh, referred to as the NPA NXX, that can actually be mapped to a county location. So again, these are just proxies and we're never getting the specific location of a texter, uh, but they're proxies for where the, the cell phone is registered. And so that's an additional layer of location granularity that uh, we're thinking about internally. Okay. So to sum this up, a, a texter has a lot of ways that they can be assured of a anonymous experience. They, they don't have to give their real name. The counselor won't know who they are. It won't show up on their bill if they do decide at the end of a conversation that they want to remove their data, uh, their metadata from your system, they can. And then whenever it's shared, it's shared at an aggregate level. Correct. Is it? Correct. Great. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you guys, that, that's one of the, the most important things to you guys and that you're keeping it on the forefront of your mind, which is a, a great thing to hear. Yeah, and I think, I think that's a, that is a sort of unbreakable promise that we make to our texters, which is to say, this is a safe space. Um, you can, 66% uh, of our texters share something with our counselors that they've never told anyone else before i think that stat alone just really letting that sit and thinking about the the space uh, that we're creating and the kinds of conversations that our counselors are having with these texters means that if we weren't doing them right by privacy and by ensuring and protecting that safe space um, we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't be living up to our to our mission and how many texters choose to share their data at the end of the call? So we yeah, we have a uh, as a post conversation survey as I as I said, and about about ten to fifteen percent of our texters complete that survey. Um, you know, obviously it's completely optional, um, but uh, given as our as the volume velocity and variety of our data keeps increasing, uh, increasing exponentially for that matter. Um, that percentage who has completed that survey is now given this, given us this uh, really incredible mapping. Well, incredible might not be the right word for it. Uh, really detailed and granular mapping of crisis trends uh, and mental health across the country and how that 
falls along lines of demographics, of issues, of time of day, day of week, location. And I think that's when, uh, as, as our corpus continues to expand, I think the sort of insights that can be taken from that data are really, um, I think, exciting for the mental health space, especially in how they can how they can supercharge impact and trying to provide treatment, care, uh, the right resources in the right places along those lines. So tell me what two or three of the most surprising insights are that you've you found in your data. Sure, I think uh, right off the bat, just to circle back to demographics, I think one of the most surprising insights that we've found is that 10% of our texters are under the age of 13. These are like, these are pre-middle school, um, pre-middle school kids. Uh, I don't even know what term to use, uh, but under the age of 13, uh, messaging into our service in crisis. Um, I would wager a guess that part of the reason might be that they're not comfortable calling into a traditional hotline, but through the mess through the medium of text messaging, uh, we are accessible and we are there to support them. Um, another one is we found looking at sort of the use of our service across different locales in the uh, in the US that we over index by a factor of two in the poorest zip codes in the country. So if you look at the bottom 10% of income brackets, zip codes across the country, and that bottom 10%, we find that nearly 20% of our volume is coming from those zip codes. So we're reaching populations who might not have any other access or may not even be able to afford counseling uh, or support. And we're getting to those groups to those groups in a free, anonymous, 24-7 uh, way. Um, thinking about, yeah, I would say the, maybe the third one is just looking at just how we see, um, how we see the, the distribution of issues. Um, so here's another one. Uh, if we look at uh, back for, uh, back in June, the month of pride, I looked into some data relative to our LGBTQ, LGBTQ plus usage. And what was particularly interesting about that is, first off, we find that 46% of our texters adult, uh, identify as LGBTQ plus. So pretty much a 50-50 split between LGBTQ plus and straight texters using our service. And now what's particularly interesting about those LGBTQ plus texters is 95% of the time that they're messaging in, they aren't talking about LGBTQ plus issues. So one of the issues we ask our counselors to tag is issues of LGBTQ-ness, um, gender, sexual identity. So only 5% of those texters conversations actually deal with LGBTQ plus issues. I think the takeaway there is often 
you might not know the sexuality of a texter. You might not know their life story. Um, they might not even be crisis in crisis sort of because of their identity, oftentimes not, but they're still looking for support, maybe other issues, other things in their lives, and our counselors are there to support them and to hear them. Hmm. Those are really interesting. Stacy. what about some of your insights from the counseling side? Sure. Um, so I spent a little bit of time looking at the Crisis Trends website and just picking out some interesting things. And um, one thing that I noticed um, that was also part of the um, Mother's Day issue um, that they emailed out, that the data team emailed out, um, the word mom is very significant for not just family issues, but really issues all across the board, even more than the word parent or the word dad. It seems like texters, um, you know, their moms are very central to their lives and very important to them, whether, you know, in a positive or negative way. But I noticed it was very prominent in these categories, anxiety, bereavement, depression, health concerns, isolation, LGBTQ+, physical abuse, self-harm, sexual abuse, and stress. Um, and then another kind of interesting thing, um, if you look at anxiety, uh, usually on, on the map, it shows, it labels the three highest states that text in about that issue. But what I noticed about texters who contact us primarily about anxiety, it was all clustered in the Northeast region. And the top nine out of 50 states were all there. Um, they were Maine, New Hampshire, Connecticut, New Jersey, Massachusetts, New York, Rhode Island, Delaware, and Pennsylvania. So I thought that was very interesting where, um, to me, that means that maybe there's something about um, the lifestyle of people in the Northeast who maybe are more prone to experiencing stress and anxiety. Yep. Yeah. Could be a combination of lifestyle and longer, harsher winters and things like that. I mean, I don't want to like try to make any implications yeah. there, but I know right. com compared to the yeah compared to which I think I think honestly you uh, you hit at a good point there, Rob. Uh, which I think is part of what our data does. It sort of is this observational trait on crisis uh, across the country and certain demographics locations. Um, but the why question, I think that's what that's where we really look towards uh, researchers and other people in the space to try to help us answer those questions. And we have some ideas and hypothesis, of course, hypotheses on our team and internally we can would all brainstorm them here too. But that why question is is a hard one. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's going to be really interesting is as your corpus grows over time, you can see how that changes over time to, one, yep. try, try to assess, you know, it, is there something that's been changing regionally that, that causes this? Or is there, uh, you know, an effect from having this data and being able to target certain types of interventions? So maybe if you notice anxiety is highest in the Northeast and you go after that as an issue there, and after a couple of years, it's dialed down. You get a way. You get a way to measure your effect that you couldn't have had before if you didn't have that data. Absolutely. 
Well, I have just a couple more topics I wanted to try to hit. I know we're getting pretty close to uh, an, an hour here, and I do appreciate the time. Um, going back specifically to uh, data science, I want to ask you as a, as a data scientist, what tools and techniques do you see being most important in the near term, you know, both maybe for you in your daily job, but also if you're thinking about uh, people that are just getting in, into the industry, um, either coming out of school yeah. or thinking about a career change? I think there's there's no more important skill for a data scientist to have than that of translating something that is technical, something that is that you pulled out of the data that you were able to make a prediction that you're able to model, translating that to the headline for your your end your end user. So we frame a lot of questions in terms of, you know, you, let's say you spend eight hours doing an analysis. How do you synthesize, synthesize that analysis into three sentences that you could present to our board tomorrow? Uh, and they would have, they would know what's going on. Which is not say, which is not to say that we're trying to completely oversimplify the problem, but or the solution. But the data scientists who are able to take something that is very complex and, and often technical and distill it into sort of, here's what happened, um, here's my recommendation, and like, here's what you need to know. I think those are the most high value situations. And especially as the field of data science moves even more towards technical tools, uh, even more advanced forms of machine learning, I think there's going to be this tension between it moving further away from what the end users, um, what the end users sort of want to hear and can communicate with. I think those two languages are diverging. So the people that are able to sort of bring it back down to reality, bring it back down to you know to what we can all speak in a common language about, um, I think those will be the most effective and i think that's also really exciting because the more you can do that the more you allow business insights and business context to inform the questions that you're asking in the data world and they aren't these sort of two totally uh separate um disciplines but sometimes they can feel that way and sometimes you can really be advantageous to to, to working on that bridge and that translation. I think that's a great piece of advice. And I think that is actually something that applies to so many domains and so many parts of technology and even consulting. Um, you know, it's something that we try to emphasize, uh, you know, for a lot of people all across different industries is how do you take uh, something and, and boil it down into something actionable to, to get to decision makers or how do you boil that down and make a decision yourself so yeah I think it's it's a it's a total art it's an art because there's this negotiation that has to take place between all of the effort that you put into research or analysis or um, you know putting together an argument or a brief and then actually distilling that into sort of the need to know like the the headlines and of course, you know all that context. You can answer the questions as they come up, and you know further direct 
what uh, what you've learned and and what we should do about it. But that prioritization, it can be, it's the hardest part of the job. It's it can be frustrating. It can be, um, you know, you can feel lost during it. But the more you're able to get it right, and I think this is also where counseling connects to the world of data science. And honestly, counseling connects to so many other different professions because this idea of empathy, this idea of let me as a user of a given product or a given discipline for a moment step into the world, step into somebody else's world, step into the world of a CEO or the world of the head of operations and think about how they might be approaching this problem and what I could say to them to make them understand why this analysis or this brief is important and they should believe it and they should trust it. I think that's where empathy and understanding and the work that Stacy and I are doing as counselors is invaluable. And I would say to anyone who is thinking about counseling that it's the it's an such an incredible lesson paired with uh, of course, the the impact and the actual talking of text, talking to texters, and I'm sure Stacy can speak to that as well. Yeah. So, Stacy, I would like to at this point get your uh, your thoughts on the impact that this has had on you as a counselor. Sure. Um, so, I've, I it really has impacted me, and it's kind of changed the way I think about other people as they're going through hard times and how like the, my role. Um, as a counselor, um, one thing that I approach differently uh, than I do in my regular conversations is we never talk about ourselves. And that's a way that we can connect to people, you know, like friends or coworkers, is you can say, oh, I went through something similar. But on the platform and talking with texters, you put the focus on them. And I, what I learned so much is that you really don't need to bring in your own experience to connect with someone. Um, just empathizing with them and validating what they're going through and honestly listening, like truly listening, um, is very powerful. Um, and that's changed the way that I interact with people, um, in my own life. I find myself now, I listen more and, um, I feel like it's helped strengthen the relationships that I have and even form new relationships. Um, as far as conversations that I've had that I felt were really impactful, um, my favorite are where I'm talking with someone who's really going through a tough time and feeling feeling very bad about themselves and and by validating the way they're feeling and saying like, wow, you really are going through a lot right now or it's understandable that you're stressed and you're doing a great job considering your circumstances. You must be a strong person. And seeing seeing those statements uplift them and make them feel better about themselves and be more forgiving and more self-loving. Um, I love that just those tools can make such an impact on someone else. Well, and I, and I would also like to say that I think that your time as a counselor has impacted you a little bit professionally as well. And it impacts me because I don't get to see you at the office anymore. <laughs> uh, so for those of you that are listening, Stacy 
uh, actually made a decision to leave the firm that uh, that we both had been working at together, and she is pursuing a degree in counseling now. Yes, um, and my time as a volunteer counselor at Crisis Text Line really helped shape that decision and and move me in that direction. But um, I think on that point, before before I made the decision um, and before I left, um, it did change the way I interacted with coworkers too. I found um, when when listening to managers or stakeholders, I would spend more time trying to understand them and what what their goals were. Um, I just, it gave me a very other focused worldview rather than being so concentrated on myself. So even, even as someone not going into a counseling or helping profession, um, it, it can really impact your life and change the way you interact. Well, I want to take a second here as we wrap things up and acknowledge both of you. Uh, one for the time that you've given me today, this has been a really great learning experience for me and it's been super interesting to learn about the organization and all the things that you're doing but also thank you so much for being counselors and helping those in need and using your craft to uh, to work for an organization and help basically move the needle in, in, in my opinion on you know how we how we use this data to make better decisions impact people in a positive way and and really try to build out uh, what you guys have available and share that with other partners where you can uh, where you can multiply your impact so thank you for that so much um, if somebody wants to get involved with crisis text line first off if somebody is in need of chatting with someone the the easiest thing to do is just send a text message to 741741 is that correct yes absolutely and then if somebody was interested in becoming a counselor, what's the what, what should they do? Um, you can go to crisistextline.org. And then once you get to the website, um, there is in the top right, it'll say join us. And you can select um, volunteer, partner, donate. Um, and then if you click volunteer, it walks you through the application. Okay, great. And if somebody wanted to get in touch with you guys uh, with specific questions about what we've discussed on the podcast, is there, uh, you know, something like Twitter or what, what would be the best way for people to get in touch with you? Would it be to go through the, the, the Crisis Text Line media group or? Yeah. Um, go ahead, Stacey. Oh, um, I was just going to say uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm not totally sure the best place to direct questions. I know um, in our contact information for press inquiries, we do have a specific press um, email account, uh, and that's actually where I got started to set up this podcast. Um, it's press at crisistextline.org. Um, and then for other questions, there's support at crisistextline.org. Um, do you know of anything else, Scotty? Yeah, we also have, you know, Twitter uh, there are Twitter, Twitter, uh, sorry, Twitter handle as well. Um, so you, you know, any questions you're welcome to shoot and not mention to that. We're very responsive. Um, but yeah, we'll I mean, happy to communicate and connect um, through those mediums. All right, great. Well, thank you guys so much for the time today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for having. Hey, thanks, Rob. Us. 
So that's going to wrap things up for this episode of For the Love of Data. Uh, if you'd like to reach out to me with any comments or questions or ideas on other episodes, feel free to tweet me. I'm at Love of Data, and uh, that's going to wrap it up. We'll see you on the next episode. Take care, everyone.